Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. What's up, Run the Numbers listeners? This is CJ Gustafson, two-time Girl Dad of the Year. Yes, if you have not heard the news, no, not the Sam Altman news, I'm excited to add a talented female, Cameron Gustafson, to our family's finance department. At 6 pounds and 13 ounces, she did come in at the high end of Q3 earnings guidance. Baby and mom are both healthy and are expected to aggressively ramp spending in Q4. In fact, I can see a growing pile of Amazon packages at our front door as I record this. So, bleary-eyed and all, I had the chance to guest appear on the Turpentine VC pod. That's where Eric Torenberg, also known as the boss on this year network, interviews top-tier VCs. So, they invited a operator on. Woo! This pod is a special edition of Run the Numbers where we're going to tease out the questions that I threw at Tom Tongas of Theory Ventures, and he's formerly of Redpoint. Many of you operators know him for his excellent blog, which I've read for years and years. It has copious amounts of benchmarks and nuggets of information that you can use to run a company. And this was truly a special one for me to record. I've looked up to him for his writing for a really long time, probably at least six years I've, I've been reading him. And people always ask me who's inspired my writing, and it's, it's always been three people. So it's Tom from the VC side, Lenny Rachitsky as a business writer, and Bill Simmons for his voice and his pop culture references. I've definitely read 90% or more of what all three of these people have ever written. I'm a student of the game in, in that very sense. So this was a bucket list interview for me. It's funny watching all this momentum come together in real time. Maybe I'm just getting reflective here because I, I had a new kid or I haven't slept in two days or I've had four to five Nespresso's today. But if you ask me when I started creating content, if I'd ever get the chance to actually sit down and talk with one of those people who inspired me to start putting myself out there publicly and creating content, that would have really blew my mind. So I also wanted to thank all of you for helping make it happen. So thank you to everyone who's been on the journey so far, whether you read mostly metrics or you listen to the podcast or both. I wanted to update you. So we're at 36,352 subscribers on Mostly Metrics. We did over 30,000 editions of people. I'm saying editions like as if it's ARR here, a CFO brain kicking in. Just uh, in the last 12 months, which is wild, first year and a half, I couldn't even get to 1,000. And pod here, three months in. In month one, we did 5,000 downloads. Month two, we did 7,500 downloads. In this month, it looks like we can crack 10,000. So I'm not sure what this really means at all. I don't know if it means you have product market fit. I think that's what the experts call it. But I, I do feel something at my back pushing me along to create more content for all of you. And in the words of Lester Freeman from The Wire, my favorite show, we're building something here, detective. We're building it from scratch. All the pieces matter. So this was a big piece of the mosaic I'm working on. Please enjoy. And we're taking a break this Thursday for Thanksgiving, but we will be back the following Monday. Oh, and do me and Cameron a favor and give us five stars because all the stars matter. Thanks, guys. Tom, welcome to the podcast or podcasts. Thanks so much for joining. Uh, thrilled to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So, Tom, let's start with the, the theory behind theory. You know, given that you're entering a very crowded venture market, how did you think about 
hey, where do you want to fit in within the within the ecosystem? Where did you want to differentiate? Walk us through kind of the idea maze of how you thought about getting your fund off the ground and, and where you wanted to play when you thought about fund size, when you thought about portfolio construction, where you thought about where you wanted founders to see you in market compared, compared to all these other amazing firms that have been around for a long time. Yeah, great question. I mean, there are a lot of wonderful firms out there. The way that we think about ourselves is we we initially started by using math to create portfolio construction. And so we started running Monte Carlo analysis on historical venture returns to come up with a basically a thesis-driven, highly concentrated portfolio where we research spaces for long periods of time, try to understand the entire landscape, and then invest at the early stage and continue to invest as companies grow. That's the, the core idea. And today we're a team of six people all pursuing that vision. I just want to say up front that uh, I'm pumped to be here and included in this jam session. The lineup already had 88 Jordan Pippen vibes, and then someone accidentally invited the Horace Grant of SAS metrics. So, <laughs> so uh, excited to Horace be here. Horace Grant, even with the glasses. Remember those days? <laughs> I thought about wearing glasses to this to make the joke really stick, but uh, I didn't know if it would land. Uh, all right, on to more important things here. You know, I wanted to say that your writing is super well-respected amongst operators, of which I am one. And usually VC content, it's really heavy on theory, but light on practice. And it actually inspired me to start writing a long time ago. And that's how Eric actually found me. And um, one, one of his pitches to get me to sign up with Turpentine was that I'd have hopefully a chance to talk with you here. And so I've been working on these questions, uh, not to freak you out here, for a, a couple months now. And wow. so the, the first one I wanted to hit you with, Tom, was, you know, VCs are in the game of providing capital, right? But they often have a skew or an area of expertise that they offer to help them differentiate themselves to founders. And for some that I've worked with before, it's pricing, others it's market analysis, and some it's go-to-market strategy. In your writing, you cover a lot of ground. What would you say your skew is at Theory Ventures to differentiate yourself amongst others? I think the, the thing that we want to be known for is the depth of our research and our analysis in these domains. Success is hearing a founder say, you understand the space better than any other investor that we've spoken with. And the, the reason we want to be known for that is we think about like launching a rocket, right? If you launch a rocket and it's two degrees one way versus two degrees another, today that may not matter that much, but in 10 years time, over long distances, the net result is pretty meaningfully different. And so if we can be users of the technology or have a deeper appreciation for how to build these companies, do you need a customer success team for an enterprise deployment or do you, is it better suited to a PLG? We hope that we can save companies or we can more accurately point the rocket and help more accurately point the rocket at the early stages so that as the businesses pick up steam, there are fewer corrections and it's a more efficient path to that ultimate moon landing. I like that. I think there's some formula out there for speed. It's like velocity times, I don't know, something or other like that. But <laughs> Tom, you seem to stick with companies and support them for a long time. And that inevitably means there are times when you have to replace a founder or level a founder and bring someone in who's more experienced. I wanted to know, how do you know when it's time to suggest that? And second, is there a preferred way of messaging that that's worked in the past and that you often lean on with operators? I think the best way of doing it is having a consistent open dialogue. And the way that we've been through this as boards a few times is we're all strong in certain areas and we're all weak in different areas. And the business needs and demands different things from its leadership, 
depending on the journey that it takes. What often happens when the board needs to replace a leader is that the business needs the, the CEO to be strong in an area that person isn't very strong in. And the CEO will often seem like exhausted or stressed about it because they're having to learn a skill in real time and it's a challenge. And so uh, in I'm thinking of at least two or three different scenarios, over the course of a few months, you can pretty quickly see that happening. And I think those conversations, by and large, if they can start from a place of empathy, like, I see you struggling, it's clear that the business needs this, let's figure out the, the right way of introducing that skill set into the business and finding people who are experts, that natural transition is, is ideally the best outcome for a business because then you can bring in a seasoned operator who's strong, they can work together for a while, whether it's like as an advisor or a board member, you know, and these processes often take like three to nine months. And there needs to be a lot of trust when that transition happens, both with the outgoing CEO and then also, and maybe even more importantly, with the, the management team that's there in place. And so it's not a very, very quick hire. So that's the way that it's really done, that I've seen it done well, or at least those are the better processes that I've seen. That's a super empathetic way of going about it. And I wanted to ask, do you think there's, and you're very data-driven, do you think there's a pattern when this starts to bubble up most commonly, whether that be, you know, a revenue size or number of employees where, you know, the founding team starts to have those struggles? So there's, Teen Zwo from Zwora taught me about this, which is, and there's a blog post somewhere out there, out there that I wrote, which is, we could think about great teams are structured with a span of control of about seven. So typically a manager is working best when they have no more than seven people. And so, you know, first early days of a business, there's a founder and then seven people reporting to that person. Then you have to add another layer of management to the cake and then another layer of management to the cake. And the way that it's described is there's a skill set of managing people. There's a skill set of managing managers of people. There's another skill set, which is managing managers of managers of people and so on. And so there's this like, I think the number is like 837, 144. And it's basically just how many managers do you have and how, if they have seven people what is that layer cake? So that's one dynamic where, I mean, like learning to delegate, I'm stunned that it's not taught in business schools. I have needed it and I'm finally getting some training in it, but that's a very, very difficult skill to learn how to manage through other people. So that's one driver of the needs of companies. The second is there's a strategic shift in the business. So let's assume, let's assume the company historically has been product-led and now all of a sudden, the market dynamics require that the company move into the enterprise because a competitor has come in and commoditized the low end of the market. That can be another change where you need a more sales-oriented leader who has experience managing outbound or large field sales teams. That's also sort of like a big strategic shift that can be another pretty important driver. And then the last is, and probably the most difficult and emotionally fraught are unresolvable disputes amongst the management team about strategy. So if you have two founders who fight or don't see eye to eye, who for some reason or another have grown apart, which happens, that's another pickle. That <laughs> leads to these kinds of situations. How rare in your experience do you think it is that a founder makes it all the way through IPO? I see stats sometimes on you know arguing are founder CEOs inherently better because they know the business from you know, it's inception and maybe they're more leaning into taking risks versus professional CEOs. Well, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's really difficult to paint in broad brush strokes. I mean, the founder imperative, like the, 
gravitas a founder has within his or her own business is unquestionable. There's just a like a respect that the employee population affords to that person for having created this incredible machine. And the hard part, I think one of the hardest parts about being a leader of an organization, particularly a hyper growth organization, is that the business evolves very quickly and the very best leaders are the ones who anticipate what the business will need from them and ensure they either have the skill set or the people around them to meet that need. And so you can do that in a bunch of different ways. You can learn it yourself or hire advisors or build out a management team. And some people are better at doing that than others. You know, I had this great manager at Google, Kim Scott Malone, who wrote the book Radical Candor. And she taught me the best leaders always manage themselves out of a job. And so the people who are better at doing that, I think, are the ones that scale. But there are success stories. One maxim to kind of make this point is there are many ways of getting to the top of the hill. That's what I've learned in venture. You don't have to go to college. You can go to Harvard or Stanford and you can still be really successful. You can be non-technical and be really successful. You can be technical and really successful. And I love that part of the valley. Like that's the ethos for me for Startup Land is that you can come from anywhere and achieve what it is that you want. It's the American dream. I think it's very much alive. So for me, it's hard to say there's a, there's a hard and fast rule. And I hope, I hope that remains the case for a very long time. I love how you emphasize, you know, the forethought to think what the business will need in the future. And maybe it differs based on how fast the business is growing. But as an operator, I always tend to think higher for the person you need 18 months out from now. What's your take on that? Is that too long of a runway to be thinking forward? No, I think that's right. So the way I think about it is like, if you're a seed stage company, your horizon is three months. That's the business should be planning for three months at the series A, you should be thinking maybe like four and a half, five months out at the series B the leadership team is thinking six to nine months out. At the Series C and beyond, it's 15 to 18 months. So what do I mean by that? Well, your product roadmaps need to be longer. When you're seed stage and you're trying to find product market fit, planning beyond three months or even six weeks doesn't make sense because you won't know what necessarily will hit. But by the time you get to be a, a sales leader or a marketing leader of a Series B or a Series C company, you shouldn't be thinking about the pipeline for next quarter. You're thinking about how do I develop the pipeline for three quarters from now, and how do I know that I'll be able to hit that number? And so that sort of, instead of looking at your feet, you're kind of looking more and more to the horizon. So at the point where the business becomes publicly traded, this is awesome quote I just found from Bezos. He said he would often laugh when analysts, public company analysts would tell him congrats on a great quarter. And what he was thinking is that quarter was baked three years ago. Right. So the work that he had done in order to get that quarter had happened three years before. He's so he's thinking three years from now. And so I think that that's a very sort of like natural transition, like looking from your feet to the horizon. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. If you're a startup founder or executive running a growing business, you know that as you scale, your systems break down and the cracks start to show. If this resonates with you, there are three numbers you need to know. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. 1. Because your business is one of a kind, so you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, 
in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com metrics. That's netsuite.com metrics to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com metrics. Reduce burn, extend runway, do more with less. Operational efficiency. These are all catchphrases that we know all too well because of the headwinds business leaders face in today's growth environment. Growth is now a battle, not a breeze. While teams are on the front lines fighting every day for top-line yardage, there are hidden savings opportunities right beneath their feet. That's where Tropic comes into play. Their procurement platform brings order and process to a historically decentralized and chaotic business function. Purchasing and supplier management. Tropic serves as the front door for procurement that your entire company will want to use. By combining intake forms, pricing benchmarks, approval workflows, and supplier management all in one place, Tropic makes savings opportunities easy to find and act on. When you pour blood, sweat, and tears into revenue growth, doesn't it make sense to protect what you have fought for? Visit tropicapp.io, that's tropicapp.io, to learn how modern businesses are controlling spend to extend their runway. Your board will thank you. Your budget will thank you. Your bottom line will thank you. I guess to piggyback a bit on the question I I just asked, so I'm a startup CFO. When do you usually counsel your portfolio companies to start thinking about hiring either a VP of finance or or a CFO? VP of finance is... I think the best leading, it's not an ARR metric, it's a contract signed metric. So how many, how many sales contracts are coming in within a given period? When does the deal desk need to be established to create some kind of consistency, both within the contracts and then also inform the plan? Because what you're really looking for is a pipeline to quarter ratio that justifies the hiring of a marginal rep or two. And so that needs to be a combination between the sales team and the finance team. And that's when the VPF should be hired. CFO is later on. I think a CFO, you're probably talking like, and we'll use ARR numbers here, but 25 to 30 million in ARR, something like that. And that's because all of a sudden the, the, you have two or three people within the accounting team, a couple of people within the FP&A or business intelligence or internal data teams. And then there are other roles that responsibilities that might roll up, like the management of legal functions and that kind of stuff. I love that. One more yeah. question. So you've researched and done a lot of diligence on companies from the traditional Oracle field sales model days to the Atlassian PLG bottoms up build days. In your opinion, across all those different models, you've seen a lot of different CFOs. What qualities do you think separates the good CFOs from the great CFOs that you've had to work with? The distinction between a good CFO and a great CFO is great CFOs spend time understanding the world outside the business. So a lot of times, I mean, people who come up through the finance org, and it's natural, right? Like the whole goal of that function is to really understand and create a mathematical model that describes the machine that is being built in real time. And the great CFOs are the ones who are both able to understand that and then understand the business in its financial context, right? What's happening in terms of the public markets? What's happening in terms of multiples? What are the benchmarks of other businesses? How do we compare? And what are the innovations are, are other parts of the finance world 
producing that could be interesting, right? So like in a zero interest rate environment, is debt the right financial instrument in order to finance the business as opposed to equity? Uh, what should we be doing in terms of treasury management? How do we position ourselves vis-a-vis our competitors to have a better financing? Where do we cut spend or increase spend in, in order to make ourselves more attractive? I think that's that's a really important step and the distinction between a good CFO and, and a great CFO. I love that because I often counsel people on my finance teams to get outside of your Excel spreadsheet and get out into the company to learn. Like I spend a ton of time with you know the product team and also the people in product marketing. So I know what the org's overall strategy is. But what you're hitting on is also get outside the company. Mm-hmm. I think that's where investor relations is really important to people because it teaches you how to storytell, but it also makes you like pick your head up every once in a while and say, well, what's going on outside of the four walls of where I work? So that was good. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think in the mind of investors, you know, the CEO will tell a story and the CEO is doing the best possible job to frame the business. And the CFO is the foil, is the person who brings a more conservative lens. And if both of them can tell a very similar story that is grounded in numbers and the operational history of the business, it drives, it produces this additional level of confidence in the company's ability to execute. So that combination great CFOs viewing themselves as a counterpart and an important uh, component of the, of the storytelling. It's just, it's a beautiful thing when it happens. What you said resonates because in my first couple months as a CFO, first time CFO, I got the chance to ask Mark Hawkins, formerly the CFO of Salesforce, a question at a conference. I said, what advice would you give to your younger self? And he said, find your own voice on the company's risk frontier. I was like, risk frontier? I haven't looked at that since like economics in college, like, you know, the classic guns and butter graph. And uh, and I was like, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, you know, the CEOs will be, you know, tend to lean more towards damn the torpedoes. Let's take some risky bets here. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and the investors will be, you know, risk off to a certain extent, even though they want you to hit an aggressive goal. And he said, it's your job to broker the conversation somewhere on the risk frontier and find your own voice. That's a brilliant insight. Eric, thank, thanks for letting me chew up all the air in the room. No, no, no. It's it great. You're bearish on sort of the, the economy in, in the short to medium term. If I recall, you think there was a bit of an overcorrection. And as a result, I, th- I think you believe that rates will be, if not high, you know, not super low, certainly not what they, what they have been the, the past decade. Is that true? And if so, does that mean that you're bearish on industries that kind of depend on, on, on low rates or, or unpack that a little bit? So the futures market, the last time I looked at it, the bond market is pricing a rate cut in uh, Q3, Q4 of 24. The dynamic is there's a convexity to the curve. So uh, cutting one percentage point from five and a half to four and a half, yes, it's one percentage point cut and it has some impact, but cutting it from two to one has much more impact on what happens in the economy. But the economy is strong, and uh, or at least that's what the numbers say. And what we're starting to see finally is like you look at like the Datadog earnings, a couple of other companies, the, the Microsoft earnings, people are starting to see a bottom where the decline in growth rates has stopped and some of them are picking up growth again. It's not broad, but you're starting to see some, and even in the private markets, a bunch of portfolio companies are starting to get their footing underneath them after missing a couple quarters. And then the earnings surprise, which is a measure of how much more positive the earnings are for public companies is off the charts for a lot of software businesses. So I think we're, you know, who am I to predict, but I think we're at a place where we're close or touching the bottom. And I would expect that like the back half of next year is stronger. Gartner, again, trying to predict the future, but you know, their overall numbers for growth, they predicted 
In 22, 9% software growth year over year. In 23, which is this year, 13%. Next year, they've raised the expectations to 14%. So there are a lot of positive signs, I think, for, call it two to three years from now, that you'll have good positive multiple expansion and, and there'll be a lot of appetite for software. I just wanted to ask one more. So I, I was going for a run this morning and I was listening to your blockbuster appearance on the HR Heretics podcast, <laughs> another Turpentine pod. Um, it, it's awesome. And you made me feel pretty positive about the world. Uh, not like the interest rate part of things, but just it being a good time for young, ambitious people to step up and take a bigger role within their organization. Would you mind just kind of quickly restating why you think this is a good time for people who are trying to get their first taste of the C-suite and take that step-up role? I think it's an incredible time if you're an up-and-comer because, one, you have massive technology changes that need to be understood, and typically younger people are the first ones to gravitate to that. Two, I think the dynamics around compensation are such that a lot of more senior executives have seen a lot of financial success, and so may not be interested in entering in like an earlier mid-stage company. The, a third reason it's a really interesting time is that because startups can't raise as, as much capital as they could in the past, and VPs are expensive, not only do they cost more on a cash basis, but they typically manage as opposed to being like a player coach. And so there's an opportunity to kind of step up into a role, be more capital efficient, know the space deeper than, than an incumbent and really grow into a role. And you can look at it even within the LP base, the number of CIOs that retired post-COVID because they knew there was three or four years of pain in front of those investment programs was huge. Uh, and I, I think you saw the same thing within the world of startups where people cashed in their chips and they said, go play golf or paddle or pickle. And so that's an awesome time, I think, to be uh, a young up-and-comer and, and really make a mark. I love world. that. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. No one likes surprises during planning season. That's why Planful empowers teams just like yours to drive peak financial performance in every corner of your business. What sets Planful apart? Think purpose-built applications for every department, from FP&A to accounting, marketing to HR, all within built-in financial intelligence. Planful can get you up and running within weeks and requires minimal IT involvement so you can rapidly and seamlessly engage everyone across the business on your key financial processes. Best of all, you have an endless runway with Planful. We have an unmatched ability to scale with you, no matter how quickly you grow. See why over 1,300 customers around the world choose Planful as their flexible, user-friendly, end-to-end financial performance management platform. Go to planful.com metrics to see how you can tackle unwanted surprises in real time. That's planful.com slash metrics. Well, maybe gearing towards uh, towards closing here, why don't you talk about the future of, of theory? What, what do you hope that this looks like in a, in a few years? Um, you know, we've seen firms like USV and Benchmark kind of, you know, stick to their knitting and, and have their ideal fund size and stay the same. And we've also seen firms like like Thrive and ACCZ and Founders Fund and Sequoia, you know, add more product lines and, and aggregate AUM and, and both types of firms have had uh, massive success. So how do you, how do you think about where, where you go from here? For sure. We have, we have a multi-decade strategy document that everybody who joins the firm reads. And I think that for the first, you know, McKinsey has three horizons. Our first horizon is 
we need to prove one, that we can attract the right limited partner base, two, that we can hire the right team, and then three, demonstrate that the idea behind our model of this like thesis-driven concentrated approach resonates in the market and we can win. We can win in competitive situations. And so I think for funds one and funds two, that's the objective is to demonstrate that the model works. And in the medium term, it's about continuing to use math to make sure that the numbers are on our side to generate really high multiple funds. That's our North Star. Yeah, let's uh, let's wrap on that. Tom, this has been a great episode. Thank you so much for joining CJ and I and sharing uh, your wisdom and, and learnings with us. Such a privilege to be with you guys. Thanks for all the questions and the preparation. I appreciate Thanks, it. Tom. Roll the credits, producer Nancy. The Run the Numbers podcast is part of the Turpentine Network of Podcasts. It is produced by Nancy Shu and edited by Justin Golden. Artwork made by some AI thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. Don't forget to give us five stars. I really need this.